0: And we're going through the Sermon on the Mount and uh, pretty much wrapping it all up. Um, So there's a difference between hypocrisy and human inconsistency. And sometimes as Christians we get a bad rap because of our inconsistencies. And the outside world sees that and they think we're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. But we're still human, we still mess up, we still are inconsistent from time to time. Um, But hypocrisy has to do with kind of a deeper issue, um, which is a heart issue. So hypocrite is, uh, so to define that, what that is, it's a play actor. Um, It's pretending to be someone you're not. So it's basically an actor. Uh, We'll start out in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 8, and I'm going to be reading from the Passion Translation. It says, to examine your motives to make sure you're not showing off when you do your good deeds, only to be admired by others. Otherwise, you'll lose your reward of the Heavenly Father. So when you give to the poor, don't announce it and make a show of it just to be seen by people, like the hypocrites in the streets and in the marketplace. They've already received their reward. But when you demonstrate generosity, do it with pure motives and without drawing attention to yourself. Give secretly And your Father who sees all you do will reward you openly. Whenever you pray, be sincere, not like the pretenders who love the attention they receive while praying before others, in the meetings or on street corners. Believe me, they've already received in full their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your innermost chamber and be alone with Father God, praying to Him in secret. And your Father who sees all you do will reward you openly. When you pray, there is no need to repeat empty phrases, praying like those who don't know God, for they expect God to hear them because of their many words. There is no need to imitate them, since your Father already knows what you need before you ask Him. So today we're going to talk about motives, which is the underlying theme of the whole Sermon on the Mount. If our motives are pure, we won't be hypocrites. In verses 1 through 2, we are instructed that our acts of charity, love, should be done with the pure motive of blessing others. It's as simple as that. I just want to bless you. If our motive is to gain self-recognition, God will not reward us. In Proverbs 19.17, it says, Every time you give to the poor, you make a loan to the Lord. Don't worry, you will be repaid in full for all the good you've done. In verse 3 through 4, secrecy refers to doing things not for personal attention. And in verse 6, our motivation behind prayer should be, uh, sh- should not be to gain recognition from men. Jesus is not speaking against public prayer here. So the question is not, why am I a hypocrite? But rather, am I just inconsistent or are my motives wrong? I believe the answer to this question is threefold. when we deal with motives. One, I don't know who I am in Christ and all that that means. Therefore, I'm still looking to man for approval instead of God. I'm still acting like the rest of the world instead of acting like a child of the King. Two, I'm self-centered. And three, I'm not guided by love. So we'll start out with knowing who we are in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 it says, Now if anyone is enfolded into Christ, he has become an entirely new creation. And that is related to the old order has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new. So what the commentary that I read said this would include our old identity, our old life of sin, the power of Satan, the religious works of trying to please God, our old relationship with the world, and our old mindsets. We are not reformed or simply refurbished. We are made completely new by our union with Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, Beloved friends, what should our proper response to God's marvelous mercies? I encourage you to surrender yourselves to God, to be His sacred living sacrifices, and live in holiness, experiencing all that delights His heart, for this becomes your genuine expression of worship. Stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in His eyes. And the footnote on this, on verse 2, says, Don't be squeezed into the mold of this present age. If I were to ask you, do you know who you are? Your immediate answer would be, of course I do. But can you imagine what it would be like if you suddenly lost all memory of your name, where you lived, who your husband or wife, your children, where you worked, etc.? It would be terrifying. There is an enormous security in knowing who you are. This is the reason people are so reluctant to change. They are secure in what they know and very fearful about what they do not know. Well, it's also a necessity that you know who you have become in your spirit. You are a new creature in your spirit, and you have to re-educate your mind to think that way before the perfect will of God will be manifest in your flesh. We are more than conquerors through Christ, but we won't benefit from that truth until we convince ourselves of it. No more than a millionaire would benefit from their bank account if they didn't know what it was in there. There is a condition that the body of Christ has been in. We have simply been ignorant of who we are in Christ, in our spirits, and of the rights and privileges that are ours. An example of this in the natural is our freedom as Americans. According to the preamble of the Constitution, we have been endowed by our Creator with certain uneniable inalienable rights which are guaranteed to us by the governing documents of the United States of America. There is an elected judicial system to enforce these rights, but with these rights there are also responsibilities. It is each individual's responsibility to know what their rights are and to go through the proper channels to obtain them. Millions of lawbreakers have never been brought to trial because the victim, for one reason or another, didn't press charges. In many cases, the people didn't know their rights. During Abraham Lincoln's presidency, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed all American slaves. But there are documented cases where slave owners hid the proclamation, and slaves continued serving in bondage because they were ignorant of the change that had taken place. This has been exactly Satan's strategy against the church. As Hosea 4.6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And 2 Peter 1, 3 says, according as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So if Satan can keep us ignorant or in unbelief about who we are and the rights that we have as a child of the king, then he can keep us in bondage even though the law of liberty in Christ Jesus has been put into effect. The most effective way the devil has done this is through religious unbelief. Specifically, the doctrinal teachings about us being unworthy, condemned old sinners, saved by grace. Praise God, I was an old sinner, but I got saved by grace, and now I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not unworthy any longer in my spiritual man. Ephesians 4.24 says, And that ye put on the new man, that is speaking of your born-again spirit which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. My spirit is righteous and truly holy. Amen? But somebody would say, all my righteousness are as filthy rags, Isaiah 6.46. And there is none righteous, not one, Romans 3.10. These scriptures refer to our self-righteousness, which can never bring us into fellowship with God, because we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Jesus took our sin and became sin for us so we might be the righteousness of God in Him. That means our new spirits. That's the part of us that is in Him. If you accept the first part of this verse, that Jesus became sin for us, then you have to accept the second part, that we received His righteousness. This is not a righteousness which is imparted in heaven. It will be perfected in heaven, spirit, soul, and glorified body. But as Ephesians 4.24 says, our spirits are now righteous and truly holy. Hebrews 12.23 says, speaking of the church, the spirits of just men made perfect. The spirit that we have, which was dead unto God, is gone. And the new spirit, which we received at salvation, is righteous, truly holy, and perfect. It is actually the same spirit that we will have throughout all eternity, One third of us will never grow up anymore. It will not be changed or improved upon. The flesh part will be changed. I'm looking for a taller flesh. (laughs) (laughs) But our spirit salvation is complete. On the inside, I feel like I'm ten feet tall. Uh, Colossians 1.12 says that we have, past tense, been made meet fit or able to partake of the inheritance of the saints in our spirits we are now overcomers and the rest of the christian life stated very simply is renewing the soul and body to that truth romans twelve two says it this way be not conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of god Paul didn't pray that they would receive some new thing from God, but rather that they would renew their minds and prove or make manifest to the physical senses what was already there. God did not change us only in principle at the new birth, but we are now, in our spirits, a totally new creation. But until we realize this and then act on it in faith, the devil will continue to oppress us. The first step in faith is knowledge. Romans 10.14 says, How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Ignorance of who we are in our spirits has made it impossible for us to act in faith accordingly. Philemon 6 says that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. This verse makes it clear that your faith becomes effectual or starts working by knowing the good things in your spirit. You could turn that verse around and not change the meaning by saying that if you don't know what's taking place in your spirit, man, your faith won't work. The religious teaching that most people have received today is either taught or left the impression that there isn't any good thing in us. We've been taught that the way to activate the power in our lives is to keep our unworthiness and weakness continually before us. This is characterized by what I call the false humility attitude among many Christians. You will hear statements like, without Jesus I can do nothing, which is totally true. But it's not balanced with the truth that I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. We need to realize we are totally dependent on Jesus but we have to go beyond that and realize that as we depend on him, we are totally superior to any weapon the devil can use against us. We are world overcomers, 1 John 5, 4. Hebrews 12, 2 says we have to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But most of us have been looking at ourselves. No wonder we've been weary and fainted in the battle. As we continue our attention from our own frailty to Christ's sufficiency, And take our place in Him, our faith will be activated and we'll begin to live like the King's kids that we are. So reason number two that we uh, sometimes have ulterior motives or act as a hypocrite or act like who we're not is because we're self-centered. You know, there used to be a song, Taking Care of Number One. And, uh, you know, I'm number one, so I do whatever I take to uh, take care of myself. And there's a lot of uh, reasons that people are like that. You know, if you were raised in poverty and you had to scrape for everything, then that is a thing that you learned. And so you rely on yourself and your wits. Uh, but there is a God that will supply all our needs. In Psalm 139.23, God says, God, I invite your searching gaze into my heart. Examine me, Examine me through and through. Find out everything that may be hidden within me. Put me to the test and sift through all my anxious cares. I want to do the right thing just because it is right and it glorifies God. Romans 12.9 says, Let the inner movement of your heart always be to love one another and never play the role of an actor wearing a mask. Despise evil and embrace everything that is good and virtuous. God created us to live our lives focused on Him. His purpose from the very beginning was that we should be God conscious, not self conscious. Until Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were so unconscious of self they didn't even consider their own nakedness. But after their disobedience, they became fully aware of themselves and wanted to hide from God. Their focus had shifted from God to self. They were the first actors. And they covered it up with fig leaves. I read a devotion with Janine this morning. And it was uh, about how they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Trying to pretend to be something that they weren't. Um, It's just fascinating. Uh, This is not a new problem. It's been going on since the creation of the world. Self-conscious is just another way of saying self-centeredness. And self-centeredness really is the root of all grief. Andrew Womack has a book entitled that. People grieve or are unhappy for a lot of reasons, but if they analyze it, they would find that it's always a result of being self-deprived of wants. So the answer to dealing with grief can be found in dealing with self. For example, financial problems often come when we try to live above our means, attempting to fulfill self-centered desires. It's not that I'm against prosperity, I'm not, but it's important to have the right perspective. If you're miserable or unhappy over the fact that you don't have a bigger home, a newer car, or a widescreen television, something's wrong. It's our self-centeredness that turns a want into a need, and then that need into a personal crisis. It breaks my heart to see so many Spirit-filled believers acting just as selfishly as the world, trying to use God to obtain things they couldn't get in the world. They're still focused on what's in it for them. They either never knew or have forgotten some of the most important scriptures in the Bible concerning finances. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. God has already promised that our needs are met in him, and that they will be added to us as a byproduct of seeking his kingdom first. It's completely unnecessary to focus our attention on trying to get something from God that he's already provided. When we do, it leads us right back to the door of self-centeredness. It's kind of like a child that comes and asks you for a cookie. And so you give him one, and he keeps asking and asking and asking. I, I, I gave you one. I mean, that's how God, I think, thinks sometimes. He's like, I know somewhere in there, you know, we come to God and we ask, God, please heal me. And he's like, I know somewhere in there. I already gave that to him. Oh, yeah. By Jesus' stripes, you have been healed. So, again, I think we just need to get back into the Word And I'm guilty. Um, Even in the case of the death of a loved one, our our grief is rooted in our personal loss. We focus on the situation from our point of view. How can I go on without them? I won't ever see them on earth again. We convince ourselves that our mourning over the death of these people, but it's really over how it will affect us. If that person was born again and is now with Jesus, it should be a time to rejoice. Let's imagine the atmosphere of a believer's funeral if we focused on the one who was with Jesus and what that person was experiencing rather than our own self centered thoughts about what we are losing. Instead of grieving, what an exciting time of thanksgiving and praise it would be. Another huge source of grief is the grief that many of you experience in your relationships with other people. Why? Because we're focused on self, it's easy to be offended. If you're experiencing bitterness, hurt, or anger in a relationship with your boss, a friend, or as in most often the case, someone in your own family, God's word leaves you no room to misunderstand the reason. Proverbs 13.10 reads, Only by pride cometh contention. This verse makes it clear that pride is the source of all contention. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. But it's not circumstances or the personalities involved in their situations that causes them the grief. It's their pride. Pride is not a leading cause of contention. It is the only cause. However, pride is like a stick. It has two ends. Most can clearly see the end that represents arrogance and haughtiness, but they fail to see the other end of low self-esteem, false humility, timidity, or shyness. People who consider themselves timid or shy are really just full of pride. Their low self-esteem causes self to dominate their thoughts. They're so focused on what other people may think if they say or do something. To protect self, they become timid and shy, causing themselves much grief. If they were asked to give a testimony or lay hands on someone for prayer, their pride would prevent it. They would not take the risk of of self being criticized. Those with false humility, on the other hand, believe that to to debase self is humility and to exalt self is pride, but that is wrong too. In James 4.10, it says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. What happens when you humble yourself? With the correct understanding of true humility and God starts to exalt you, the truly humble will let him but the proud won't. They are too concerned about what others think and will try to deflect it by debasing themselves. It's just another form of pride. True humility is agreeing with what God's word says about who you are and doing what God's word says you can do. Then quit worrying about what other people may think, whether they praise you or condemn you. It just doesn't matter when you are truly humble and dead to self. So I, heard, I had a friend and he said, uh, if, if you ever get more concerned about people that you are ministering to than you are about yourself and what they think of you, then God will use you. That means I have to humble myself and accept the fact that God has a message to deliver through me. As a man, I am introverted. You can ask my wife. I could hardly look someone in the eye. I had to die to myself and become alive to Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. And Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. These Bible verses teach that we are supposed to be dead to self and alive to Christ. And if we are really dead, it would be impossible to be offended. Dead people never feel a thing. They can be kicked, insulted, or even lied about, and they just don't care. The reason we are so easily hurt or offended is that we are still alive to self and full of pride. However, if we focus on becoming dead to self and alive in Christ... We will probably fail. I used to resurrect self every morning in prayer while trying my best to kill it. I confessed all the sins I thought I would committed. Pride, arrogance, failure to study the Word, on and on it would go until the end of my devotion time. I had spent the entire time focused on myself. The correct way to deal with self is to shift your focus. Find someone who needs prayer or ministry. Help them in their situation, and you will find yourself forgetting about their needs. You also discover that what you thought was so important is really insignificant. Love for another person will always overcome self. It will require that you give yourself away and become a living sacrifice, but it's worth it. In Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Jacob Marley reminds us all that Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. But our ultimate focus has to be on God, not just others, and certainly not on ourselves. It's only when we are totally surrendered to God that we can love others who violate our self-interests. Again, Romans 12.1 says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Isn't it interesting that self-sacrifice is considered by God to be our reasonable service? To do that, we must humble ourselves, reject ourself as Lord, and lay it on the altar. The only problem with living sacrifices is that they, they tend to crawl off the altar. Even if we make this commitment in our hearts right now, we will have to renew it again tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year. As long as we are here on earth, we will have to make the decision to love Jesus more than ourselves every day. In a day when self is being exalted to the max, understanding the consequences or the fruit of self-centeredness is crucial. In the end, it will only lead to grief. Reason number three why we have uh, bad motives. We're not guided by love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 is a love chapter. And I want to read this to you out of... uh, If I were to speak with eloquence in earth's many languages and in the heavenly tongues of angels, yet I didn't express myself with love, my words would be reduced to the hollow sound of nothing more than a clanging cymbal. And if I were to have the gift of prophecy with a profound understanding of God's hidden secrets, and if I possessed unending supernatural knowledge, and if I had all the greatest gift of faith that could move mountains, but have never learned to love, then I am nothing. And if I were to be so generous as to give everything I own to feed the poor and to offer my body to be burned as a martyr, Without the pure motive of love, i gain nothing of value. Love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. Love does not brag about one's achievements, nor inflate its own importance. Love does not traffic in shame and disrespect, nor self- selfishly seek its own honor. Love is not easily irritated, or quick to take offense. Love joyfully celebrates honesty, finds no delight in what is wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. Love never stops loving. It extends beyond the gift of prophecy, which eventually fades away. It is more enduring than tongues, which will one day fall silent. Love remains long after words of knowledge are forgotten. Our present knowledge and our prophecies are but partial, but when love's perfection arrives, the partial will fade away. When I was a child, I spoke about childish matters, for I saw things like a child and reason like a child. But the day came when I matured and I set aside my childish ways. For now we see but a faint reflection of riddles and mysteries, as though reflected in a mirror, but one day we will see face to face. My understanding is incomplete now, but one day I will understand everything, just as everything about me has been fully understood. Until then, there are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love, yet love surpasses them all. So above all else, let love be the beautiful prize for which you run. The word love here is the Greek word agape, which describes the highest form of love. It is the love God has for his people. It is an intense affection that must be demonstrated. It is a loyal, endless, and unconditional commitment of love. Feelings are attached to this love. It is not abstract, but devoted to demonstrating the inward feelings of love toward another with acts of kindness and benevolence. In verse 4, it says, love is, patient and incredi- love is large and incredibly patient. Or another way of saying this, love patiently endures mistreatment. It could mean that love is incredibly patient even in difficult relationships. In verse 5, love does not traffic shame and disrespect. Love is not easily irritated or overly sensitive. The Greek says, having sharp edges. And it does not take offense, or it's not resentful, it does not keep score. The Aramaic can be translated, love does not stare at evil. Love will overlook offenses and remain focused on what is good, refusing to hold resentment in our hearts. And then in verse 12, Paul is referring to God speaking to Moses face-to-face. The Hebrew is actually mouth-to-mouth and not using dreams and figures of speech. Transforming love will bring us all face-to-face and mouth-to-mouth with God. Most of us think that we really understand the love of God, but our experience proves otherwise. We feel lonely, depressed, discouraged, and defeated. Every one of these negative emotions would be turned to positive by a proper revelation of God's love for us. As for loving others, most of us would admit there are some people who are very difficult to love. Since we don't fully understand God's love for us, we fail in loving others. We can't give away what we don't have. If we receive a full revelation of God's love for us, it becomes easy to love others with the love that we have received. When we struggle to believe that God promises to us will come to pass, that's unbelief. But the root of that unbelief is a lack of love. Galatians 5.6 says faith works by love. That means love is the driving force behind our faith. Remove or diminish love and faith ceases to be what it should be. Many of us try hard to believe when we should be seeking a greater revelation of God's love for us. Then faith would just naturally work. The Lord speaks to us very clearly in Luke twelve thirty two. The verse says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I realize my unbelief is because I had forgotten how much God loves me. God delights in our prosperity, Psalms 35, 27. He gets no pleasure from watching us starve. As the revelation of God's love for us comes flooding over us, all doubt that our needs will be supplied will be instantly gone. Love makes our faith work. As soon as we open up to His love, our faith revives. There is more than just a superficial knowledge that God loves. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would get a greater revelation of God's love for them. He said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, with which passeth knowledge, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. In verse 18, God's love isn't just one-dimensional. There is height, depth, length, and breadth to it. Many Christians only see God's love as they would see a painting in one dimension. They've never seen the multi-dimensional reality of God's love. In verse 19 Paul said as we experience God's love which is superior to mere knowledge of God which is superior to mere knowledge of God's love then we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Are you lacking in any area of your life? If so, you lack a revelation of God's love. Experiencing God's love equals fullness. A deep revelation of God's love for us is the most important thing that we can receive. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, Now abideth faith, hope, charity, but these, these three, but the greatest of these is charity or love. There are many ways that Satan uses to block the revelation of God's love for us. One of the most subtle and therefore the most deadly ways is that he has deceived us into thinking that God's love for us is tied to our performance. We think we have to do something to earn God's love. We have to merit God's love. But that is not what the Bible teaches. In the natural world, you do get what you deserve. Employers don't hire you based on their love for you. You have to perform. If you perform badly, you are punished or fired. The same thing is true in most relationships. I've had other people tell me, married couples... They don't deserve my love. However, the nearly too good to be true news of the gospel is that we don't get what we deserve. Amen? God's love for us is unconditional. That is, God doesn't love us because of some virtue we possess. God loves us because God is love. 1 John 4.8 Not because we are lovely. Religion is one of the biggest propagators of the conditional love of God lie. Most Christian churches teach that God's love for us is conditional based on our performance. If we go to church, pay our tithes, then God will love us and answer our prayers. But if we fail, then the Lord won't answer our prayers. That's simply not true. There is a disease in the church that's called spiritual dyslexia. Dyslexia is where a person sees things backwards dyslexic person sees the word god as dog there's a huge difference between god and a dog yet dyslexics don't see it spiritual dyslexia has a similar effect on people those infected with this spiritual dyslexia see scriptures backwards for instance first john 2 3 through 5 says and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments he that saith i know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfect. Hereby know we that we are in him. A dyslexic Christian would see these verses and says, I want to know God, so I must keep his commandments. These verses are just saying just the opposite. Keeping God's commandments is a result of knowing God. You can live a holy life without knowing God. The Pharisees proved to that. However, you can't know God without living a holy life as a result. When God's love is perfected in us, keeping God's word will be the result. Any attempt to reverse this order and getting the cart before the horse won't work. And yet, the, this is what the majority of Christians are trying to do. They're seeking to know the Lord better by living a holier life. It's just the opposite, experiencing God's love more will produce a holy life. This dyslexic condition has caused many to tie God's love for them to their performance. When they do well, they let God's love flow. When they, don't, when they do poorly, they condemn themselves. They think God is condemning them, but He is not. In many cases, it's not even the devil condemning them. Satan has caused them to believe a lie, and they are condemning themselves. We all need a greater revelation... Of God's unconditional love for us. So, in closing, I want to read to you um, some scripture. Um, Again, the three reasons that can cause us to act as hypocrites are not knowing who we are in Christ, being self centered. And not being guided by love. Ephesians four fourteen to thirty two, so in closing, uh, says this No prolonged infancies among us please. We'll not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for impostors. God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth and tell it in love, like Christ in everything. We take our lead from Christ who is the source of everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other. His very breath and blood flow through us, nourishing us so that we will grow up healthy in God, robust in love. The old way has to go. And so I insist, and God backs me up on this, that there will be no going along with the crowd, the empty-headed, mindless crowd. They've refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch, not only with God, but with reality itself. They can't think straight anymore. Feeling no pain, they let themselves go into sexual obsession, addicted to every sort of perversion. But that's no life for you. You learned Christ. My assumption is that you have paid careful attention to Him. Been well instructed in the truth, precisely as we have it in Jesus. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it and then take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. What this adds up to then is this. No more lies. No more pretense. Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we're all connected to each other after all. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry. But don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. And don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. Did you used to make ends meet by stealing? Well, no more. Get an honest job so that you can help others who can't work. Watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps. Each word a gift. Don't grieve God. Don't break His heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for Himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. Make a clean break of all the cutting backbiting, profane talk. Be gentle with one another, sensitive, forgiving one another as quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. Amen.